welcome to the Sociology and Animals podcast series. In this program, we speak with folks specializing in the sociological study of animals and society in an effort to document and explore how research in our field is applied in the real lives and careers of sociologists. My name is Dr. Corey Wren. I'm currently chair of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association. But this podcast is coming to you from Canterbury, England, where I have been living since 2019 after accepting a position as lecturer in sociology with the University of Kent. Our field is growing, but it is still small and doesn't always elicit support from colleagues, prospective employers, editors, reviewers, grant funders, and so on. My aim with this podcast is to challenge this institutional discrimination and provide some insider insights into making a career out of animal studies. Not that long ago, the idea of a career in animal studies would have seemed impossible, if not outlandish. It is my aim that this podcast will serve as a sort of informal virtual mentorship for folks interested in learning more about the sociological pursuit of animal studies. So without further ado, let's meet today's guest. Hello, Nick. Welcome. How are you? Hey, Corey. Thanks for having me here. I am good. Thank you. Um, I'm happy to be here. I've been listening to these excitedly as you've been doing them. Oh, yeah. So we're on totally opposite ends of the world right now and totally different time zones. And we're also just like you're getting ready for bed. I just woke up. And for listeners, we also have some dogs in the room that may make a pleasant appearance. Right. Yes, we may. We've got Bailey here and Loki here, um, oh. who are both, you know, wonderful and full of trouble in all the ways, the good ways that dogs should be. Do you know on podcasts and people say, well, I, oh, my dogs might make an appearance. I'm always, oh, I hope they do. <laughs> I know. I know. Fast forward to where the dogs turn up, right? <laughs> um, so tell the folks about yourself because, gosh, you're pretty well known in the field. You've done a whole lot of stuff. How could you condense that and tell the great people of what you've done? Oh, I don't know that I'm known for being very good at condensing things. Um, I'm a sociologist. I'm an animal studies scholar. Um, I've been doing the sociology of human-animal relationships for about 20 years now, which is quite sobering. Um, I'm currently at the University of Canterbury in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and I work in the human services program here where I teach human services and social work and criminal justice students about human-animal violence links um, and various other aspects of human-animal relationships. And I'm also a member of the New Zealand Centre for Human Animal Studies, which we are lucky enough to have at the University of Canterbury and which, in fact, brought me to the University of Canterbury. Um, so lots of exciting research and researchers and a great PhD cohort there. That condensed enough? How <laughs> about oh, you've written books? I have written books. Um, I'm terrible at remembering what I've written, though, so please don't ask me to list them all. Um, but my areas of interest, I guess, that are reflected in those books are I'm really interested in human-animal violence links, and we'll probably get into this later. So I'll just say at this stage that I don't mean at the interpersonal level. I mean at the societal and the cultural level. Um, and I'm also interested in um, kind of methods and how we silence animals through excluding them in our social sciences research and how we might start to rectify that. Um, I think that there's... Like there's very little published on uh, species-inclusive methodologies. Yeah, I think I wrote one of the first books about it with Lindsay Hamilton. Um, 
uh, where we kind of talked about ethnography as a vehicle for including animals in a broader kind of decolonizing of methods project. And funnily enough, just while I was waiting to chat to you, I've just been writing a, um, a blog post about the need to do research that incorporates more um, kind of sens sensory research, so particularly smell and touch, if we're going to be talking about research across species lines, and how that all links into like this decolonizing project at an epistemic level that I think links in with ecofeminism and some of the kind of um, critical race studies and some of the black vegan studies. So it, that's very much kind of an ongoing interest of mine in terms of you know, how do we, if we're going to talk about human relationships with other animals, if we're, if we're only ever doing it through questionnaires and interviews, we're only ever talking about humans, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're going to talk about human-animal relationships and we want some kind of parity there that matches, um, I guess, our moral sensibilities, then we've got to find a way to include their voices, for want of a better term, in that research. And I, I don't have the answers here. I don't know how we do that. But I do know that one of the best ways that we get towards that is by being quite playful with our methods and attempting to do different things and to talk to each other about these wacky ideas that we've had that may or may not work. Um, so, yeah, so that's very much something I'm still I'm still kind of working on in terms of particularly visual methods. Um uh, just for including other animals in the stuff that we're doing as animal studies scholars. So I actually would love to jump ahead to a question I ask later in the interview because this is so fascinating. And if I may, I would say this is probably one of the major developments in sociology or that could speak to animal studies. So maybe you could tell us just a little bit more about like what do you do with this methodology? Because I know that folks listening, this is one thing we have not touched on in this podcast yet, is folks who are just really interested in advancing methodology. I know Zoe spoke on it briefly, but what else can you offer to what where does it sorry, I'm just like so excited. What about the colonial part? Like how you're saying decolonizing <laughs> How does it all fit together? Yeah. Well, I think the question that you're referring to that you asked later is kind of like, what are some of the key ideas from sociology that are exciting for animal studies? And when I start thinking about the methodological issues, all of this collides for me. I don't know how coherent I can be here without, I'm, I'm much better writing than I am talking. Um, but I think... You know, I think when we start talking about human-animal differences, generally speaking, um, we don't get towards thinking about that at an epistemic level. So how is it that we, at, a, at, a, at an epistemological level, how do we create that sense of difference between humans and other animals? And we do it in a you know, myriad of different ways. So we socially construct them in particular ways, socially construct us in particular ways as standing against them. And I think that you know, one of the ways that we need to start thinking about this is how do we start to then decolonize this, which then takes me to this place of, well, if we're going to really start to decolonize stuff, then what we're talking about is changing our paradigms. We're talking about changing our worldviews from the bottom up. And where I start with this is kind of with ecofeminism. You know, ecofeminists have been telling us for years that um, if we really want to save the environment, if we really want to change the trajectory that humanity is headed on, then we actually need to turn our ideologies around. We need to completely pull them apart, start again and rebuild them. So that's the decolonizing aspect. And if we are going to try and rebuild um, our worlds, our epistemologies, 
then we can't do it. It's the order of Lord stuff of the master's tools won't tear down the master's house. You know, we can't do it using those tried and tested tools that we know were used, they're implicated in holding up things like white supremacy, for example. So what we need is a whole new toolkit. And that toolkit, if we're working as animal studies scholars that want to decolonize the human-animal binary, then that toolkit, there's Bailey saying hello, by the way. He's obviously enjoying the conversation. <laughs> that toolkit has to include other animals. So we need to start thinking about how we actually, how we do that. How do we bring them in? How do we make them visible in the research that we do so that it isn't just research about what humans think? Because, frankly, we know what we think of other animals, right? And we are working to change that, but it's slow going. And one of the best ways that I think we can change that and we can reach people about the need to change that is to show them what other animals can do, what they're capable of, how they how their worlds are. I know as someone who does qualitative stuff that there's definitely a hierarchy of appreciation in sociology and credibility in sociology based on your methodology. So there's been research actually on uh, journals that publish more quantitatively get more attention, get more citations. So have you found that that's been an issue when you're trying to do decolonial methodologies? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, I've kind of got to the stage, and I will say here I'll, that I'm pretty privileged in that I'm towards the end of my career and I'm fairly established, so that gives me freedom that not everybody else listening will have. Um but I've kind of got to the stage where I'm so sick of being the feminist who does studies with pets or with other animals um, that I, I just kind of think I don't care. You know, if if it doesn't get to the Q1 journal or whatever terminology that we're using in the top door journals, but it makes it out into the world and it makes a difference, then I'm just going to take that as a score now. Thanks, frankly. Um, and that doesn't mean I don't write for some of these kind of top tier journals. I obviously do. I publish in them. But I do think that when you're talking about, um, I mean, I wrote a book about this in 2016, about the neoliberalization of the um, tertiary education sector and how these kind of metrics close down um, research into areas that are very critical um, because, you know, you can't find funding for them, you can't get into the top journals. Top journals tend to be really conservative. So I think if you're willing to kind of play with these ideas, these methodological ideas, and throw stuff out there, and you're doing it from a very politicised position of, I'm a vegan feminist who wants to make animal lives better, you're probably not going to get that in a top draw sociology journal anyway. So I think, well, right with the passion, get it into another journal, get it out into the world and see what seeds come from it. You can always do other projects that get you into those journals. That would be kind of where I am at the minute. But like I said, that's a pretty privileged position that I'm in with a full-time job. Yeah, that's one thing that kind of annoys me is now that I've been hired at Kent, in the UK system, it's all about publication. Where have you published? How often have you published? How many times have you been cited? Whereas in the US system, it's you need that for tenure but you don't need that to sustain your career so there's definitely pressure on me and i know it's going to mean like really watering down my message and twisting around like the topics i want to do whereas so now i feel like I'm, a lot of my work is on how 
colonialism has impacted humans through animality. And then I try to come through with the David Nybert argument that, well, animal-based systems are also responsible for that. So, hey, don't forget about the animals. But I do know if I just made it about animal rights, you know, it's going to be some some barriers to the top journals. Absolutely. So yeah, that- I, think, I think you're right. But I also think, you know, there's a question that we need to ask ourselves in terms of, I know universities have this term impact and they frame it in different ways. Mm. But I think we could really ask ourselves, you know, where is the most impact made? And if you want to make inroads into academic circles, then sure, those top journals matter. And you can, you know, you can plant seeds and you can kind of turn yourself into a pretzel to make sure that you don't say anything that's deeply politicized or offensive. And you can do all that and you can get published there, which then gives you the permanent job that gives you a little bit of latitude to also publish in other places um, that the university may not necessarily think of as highly, but that actually might have more impact. Now, this could be things like open access journals. I I publish in an open access journal that is aimed at social work practitioners all the time because I want these social work practitioners to take up some of the ideas and make use of them. You know, they're not going to find those hidden in an A-star journal in sociology. So, I think, you know, thinking about what your message is and where you want to get it out to can also help you think about, well, okay, where do I want to send it to? Um, Which can help then be quite strategic in terms of your career overall. That's actually a very, very good point. That's something that I wasn't in the U.S. system. Well, in the U.S. system, I wasn't on tenure track, so I don't know how much pressure there was on folks to be impactful. But here in the U.K., I think having an impact, which is nebulous, difficult to define, but it's, you know, it does give you a little bit of room to do other things. I guess they're mostly looking at, will you affect policy? Well, then I started thinking, well, who's policy? I hope one day maybe my research will be useful to the vegan society. So would that count? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and and I think it's about, you know, I mean, we're, we're digressing now into other questions that you were going to ask, but I think it's about managing the, stra- the strategy with the passion. So I've tried throughout times in my career to be deeply strategic. It's always failed. I'm not a strategic thinker. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's also taken away the motivation to do a lot of the work from me when I've tried to be super strategic. And on the other hand, if you just let me roll with my passion, then I will churn out papers and books all the time because I love to write. I love to write what I'm passionate about. So I've come to the conclusion now that it's kind of, Really, it's about finding some kind of balance between the two. I'll be strategic on occasion, but that is to give me the latitude to follow the passion the rest of the time, which is most of the time. Um, And in fact, that normally turns out, you know, because you are passionate, you're working harder, you're doing more, you're reading more, you're writing more. I actually find that I'm more productive when I follow the passion rather than following the strategy. So, you know, balances really. Yeah, and for students listening to this who may not be aware of what the academic career is like, productivity is <laughs> is the key word here. That's our, our motto, which will go on our tombstones. I should be writing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've jumped around quite a bit, but that's fine because that's where the conversation went. But let's back it up just a little bit because we've been talking about some of the the barriers we might come up against in sociology doing kind of marginalized work, but what is it about sociology that you think is most conducive in the first place? Why are we using the sociological toolkit? Um, I mean, I don't think it's all sociology. I will say that, you know, there are conservative streams in sociology that I don't particularly like as a sociologist. 
Um, but what drew me to sociology in the first place was its willingness to ask questions about aspects of social life that everybody else didn't want to talk about. Mm. Um, and so it, in that respect, it's been really surprising that we haven't turned to the animal question or animal issues sooner. But for me um, personally, what what I think sociology has going for it when we're looking at animals is, you know, we're obsessed with power. I've said this in many different forums, but if you ask a sociologist what they do, they'll give you a long-winded paragraph, but what it boils down to is they study power mm. and they study the way that power manifests itself in society. Um, and obviously you can go lots of different ways with that, but, you know, the one constant between human relationships with other animals is that we tend to have way more power than they do power over their lives um and so i think that focus on power and focus on kind of the structural and cultural embodiment of power um is really useful for animal studies scholars so i think that's probably what what pulled me there in the first place um and where i see that kind of going now where i think it's really interesting and exciting is the development of, of theories around intersectionality. Yeah. Um, and again, sorry, I know I'm, I'm jumping all over the place, but you were going to ask about um, books that we recommend um, or books that, you know, may, made a difference. And one book that made a huge difference to me, do you know Marjorie Spiegel's work on um, dreaded comparison, human and animal slavery? Yeah, that's on my shelf. Yeah, well, I remember reading this. I must have been not too far out of my PhD or even in my PhD. I can't remember. Um, and it was the first time that I really had considered an intersectional understanding. I've been working in ecofeminism and I was taught, you know, I was used to the idea of interlocking um, violences, but I'd never really considered to, uh, how we might take that further. And then I read the dreaded comparison and, I, and that really kind of opened my eyes and got me thinking about things very differently. When was that book? And why I, go on. When was that book published? It's I old. don't know off, off the top of my head. It is old. I think maybe two thousand and three. But I don't know. What I remember about that book is that it. I found out about it not long after I became vegan. I became vegan in two thousand and one. And then you know how most people when they first go vegan just kind of push it on everybody. <laughs> For Christmas presents, I made everybody a little vegan kit, and it had that book in it. Like vegan cooking, right. vegan so it's, <laughs> it's a really accessible book as well and really short, you know, so you can read it in an afternoon or whatever. But it's it's just I, I, I recommend it to the students now as a starting point for intersectional analyses. And I mean, I think we've come a long way since then. You know, I think there are some nice um, critiques about that, about that particular book. Um, and around kind of particularly black veganism and, and how we move again to kind of um, decolonizing the epistemic um, rather than just decolonizing the corporeal. Um, but, but I do think that as a starting point, as something that will change your view on the world, that's a really good book. And I think it embodies everything that, I, that is good about sociology when it comes to studying human-animal relationships. It lets us look at these kind of macro concepts to see how power is embodied, or is, sorry, is embedded in structures in ways that it's really hard to both pinpoint and to challenge, but also at the same time, it's really clear that we absolutely have to challenge them. So I think it's this obsession with power that, that, that drives me as a sociologist. And that book has lots of pictures. For those who <laughs> just want to, 
get the gist. Um, the interesting thing about that book is it has been, yeah, it's older and it, and people have even questioned who wrote this. I don't know who Marjorie Spiegel is. I heard through the grapevine that she is a person of color herself. And, but that book has kind of, it's considered maybe one of our classics because <clears throat> I think nowadays it's not, it's a little bit more taboo to just kind of make base comparisons between groups like that. And so black vegan feminism has advanced considerably. And a lot of folks have cited AFCO on this podcast series. Uh, and there's Claire Jim, is it Claire Jean Kim who's also done work yeah. on so there's a lot of folks who've written since, for those who are interested, there's a lot of folks who've written since that book, but that book, if, you've, if you're hearing us and have no idea what we're talking about, that really is a good place to start because it is easy to read, lots of pictures. But I also wanted to clarify that that has really sparked a whole new line of research and critical thinking in our subfield on- Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I mean, I think I, I think it's absolutely fine that it's a bit taboo now to make some of the comparisons that she does because I think, you know, I mean, knowledge is generated over time, you know, and we, we all develop and we develop in, in terms of our thinking. Um, and I've been reading Athan Sills' co, co book this, this week, actually, in preparation for a class. And it is a fantastic book and it's fantastically accessible. Um, and they make this whole argument, don't they, around the need not to compare bodies, but to compare the structural, what I would call the epistemic. So the structural and the cultural ways that we socially construct blackness, which in a way that Spiegel, I don't think she didn't go that far. But what I think Spiegel did do is she put the idea on the map. Um, And, you know, it's like the early, it's like Val Plumwood, you know, she's writing in the 1970s about these interlocking oppressions and eco-feminists. And as far as I'm aware, she's not, she wasn't a practicing vegan. She, she was, I think maybe vegetarian. And there are some issues and she argued against veganism. And there are some issues in her work that would not make me wholesalely say I'm a Val Plumwood fan. But what I am is a fan of those very early ideas that she got out there that we're all indebted to that allow us to think the way that we think or you know the way that we're developing our thought now and I think Spiegel's another one through that book that did not yeah okay so I'm gonna now this is not on the question list but it can be seen as part of one of these questions because I want to now push you because that made me think well when we are trained as sociologists and we're exposed to the classics and the founding fathers and there were founding mothers but we don't really learn about them but one of the things is that I ask my students, because I, I teach classical sociology, social the- sociological theory, and I ask them, you know, why are we, why are we even, because they come in and complain, oh, I do read this Marx stuff and it's from the 1850s, and they don't get it, and they're just sitting there, and I'm like, listen, I'm determined, by God, I'm going to get y'all excited about Marx and Weber. <laughs> it's like, there's a reason we're still studying them. But it's the same kind of situation where they were writing in, in, in a different century and they were writing about specific social problems, what was going on with modernization, industrialization, urbanization, and whatever else. But some of us, all these years later in critical animal studies, are able to pull them into the present and make them applicable to these new questions that we're asking as sociology has advanced so much in these centuries. Is there any of the classical social sociological theories that really speak to you? Yes, I mean I'm a fan of Marx. I mean I don't I don't know that you can have my politics. You know I'm a working class woman who grew up in the northwest of England in a mill town, and my family was strong unionists. 
Um, I was kind of born to be a Marxist. I don't, I don't think I could have turned out any other way. And before I really turned to feminism, it was Marxism that got me interested in sociology. Um, and I think that one book that does a superb um, job of of making Marx relevant to human uh, human oppression of other animals is Bob Torres's book Making a Killing. Oh, good one. Um, yeah, and I mean, I'm still heavily influenced by that. It, you know, I mean, I, I have problems with Marxism. I mean, historically, it's very humanist. It mm-hmm. it, it leans towards sexism, and it has problems mm-hmm. including, um, you know, a- anybody. <laughs> anybody of difference can I say yeah. um, including other creatures um, but I don't think that that means that we should dismiss it entirely I mean I think you know no knowledge is created in a vacuum we're all standing on the shoulders of the people who came before us and what they were thinking even if we're arguing against them we're still standing you know against what they were saying so I think we have to understand our intellectual tradition you need to know how we th- how we got to thinking the way that we do think today, whether it's about animals, women, whatever. Um, And, you know, that's why we need to understand the classics and understand why they had the impact that they did. And even if they were shoddy in some areas, I don't think that that means we can't borrow bits of them. So I, you know, if you, if you ask me, to come up with an idea of or a label of what kind of theorist I was, I couldn't give you one. On some days I'm borrowing from Foucault, on other days I'm borrowing from Marx, on other days it's the feminist, on other days it's black feminism. It's all over the shop, you know, but it really is just about taking ideas that excite you and seeing how you can put them together in a puzzle that extends those thinking in a, those forms of thinking in a new way. I think that's a really good way to put it, actually. While you were talking, I was just thinking of all my colleagues and how they have their favorite classic theorists that they go to. I know someone who does Gramsci. I know people who do Marx. I know people who do Bourdieu. I know people who do Goffman. And I mean, of course, not only that, but one of the things that I want to really impart on folks listening to this, if you're new to this field, you're thinking about uh, continuing in this field, is because we are such a new um, research area, there's so much room to go back to the classics and to to reimagine them. And also to thinking about like Karl Marx, for instance, Karl Marx wrote a very long time ago, and, and I think he was writing in German in a lot of his work, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. And then, and like Weber was writing in German and Durkheim was writing in French or whatever. And pe- we had to rely on translations of these folks and people who are translating and or even just bringing these people back from the dead in the mid 20th century, they, they had their own biases. So Talcott Parsons has been criticized for putting his own spin on, uh, who was that he translated? Was it Baber? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, anyway, he was a, tra- he, he's his own, he was a theorist in his own right, but he also kind of made his mark by translating some of the old stuff. But then people went back and said, ah, but you're translating it in a way to spin it in a certain bent or whatever. Yeah. So then the last point on that, I was just thinking there was a publication that came out in the Monthly Review. And for those who don't know, the Monthly Review is a kind of a socialist Marxist academic activist publication. And some folks from our field went in and did a huge reimagining of Karl Marx and made the argument that he was actually more inclusive of non-human animals than history has remembered him for. Mm-hmm. And they, like all this like uh, works of his, these notes poured through all his papers made a very convincing uh, claim. And there actually were notes where he made specific observations of uh, what was happening to non-human animals during the Industrial Revolution. 
so there's there's so much room. I just wanted to to really emphasize to people. There's so much room to use what we have and apply it to new questions. Or you can even go back if you want to be that guy or girl. You can go all the way back and maybe look for stuff that other sociologists have overlooked from those people's work. Yeah, so, well, Richard White's been doing this. So Richard White from Sheffield, he's been working on, was he Recluse? One of the very early sociologists, he's been using his kind of ideas to, to develop his work on um, anarchism and animals. And also while you were talking, I thought what would be a really interesting project would be to go all the way back. You know, you said that we're always looking at the founding fathers of sociology and we ignore the founding mothers. It would be really interesting to go back and unearth some of those founding mothers and some of their thoughts and see whether they're more inclusive um, and just kind of track, you know, how that, that was accepted or not um, uh, and whether that's had any impact. It's just been unspoken impact. Oh, you got, you know, it's got to be something in there. <laughs> yeah, I reckon. I can't see how they couldn't be. <laughs> there was a new issue of sociology, the, it's a Brit, the British Sociological Association's journal, and there was an article I was reading yesterday about the authors went back and looked at some of the early women sociologists in Britain. And one of the things that they were doing was going out and surveying working class areas, slums. And, and one of the things that they were doing, not just kind of documenting their conditions, but they were taking detailed notes on what they ate, what the diet was. And the, the vegan scholar in me was just, Oh, I just want to know what was in there. So yeah. That sounds fascinating. So uh, we've been talking for quite a, a while on a lot of really cool stuff, but we're definitely hitting the 30-minute mark. So I guess we'll have to wrap it up here. And is there anything um, anything else you want to highlight about sociology, or do you want to just tell us where we can find you? Um, no, there's a couple of things. Well, I, what I will say to finish is I think if you're a young scholar at the minute in animal studies, in sociology, in the academy general, it's a very, very daunting place. And I would say, you know, it's a bit of a plea, plea sorry, that's Loki wanting to come in. It's a bit of a plea, this, but if you are a young scholar who is committed to social justice, please don't be put off by the state of the academy today. We desperately need you. So that, well, that would be one thing I would like to say. Um, and in terms of where you can find me, I have a blog online that you can check out, which is the, well, I can probably give to you, can I? You can just link it to the page rather than me working through it. And that's probably the best place to start to find me. And then there are links there that take you to places like ResearchGate, where you can download most of my work for free. Thanks for listening to Sociology and Animals. I hope you found it helpful and informative. If you want to learn more about the sociological study of society and animals, you can check out the website of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association or my own website at coreyleebrin.com. You can also check out the International Association for Vegan Sociologists, and the website for that is vegansociology.com. Feedback and suggestions can be submitted to myself at coreyrenn at gmail.com. That's C-O-R-E-Y dot W-R-E-N-N at gmail.com. If you liked this episode, be sure to share this series with others. The music for this podcast was provided by Ode to Sleep, a band local to where I live here in East Kent, England. Ode to Sleep explores various topics with their music, including human and animal rights, environmental issues, equality, and mental health. Their debut EP will be released in September 2020 through Is No I N Team Records. Their single featured here is called Captive Audience and is available now on all streaming platforms. Until next time, this is Dr. Corey Wren signing off. All the best. <laughs>